Indeep is made possible through the generous support of Manitou Fund. A special thanks to them for helping us share the hidden world of water with you. When I talk about my subject, excrement, people look shocked, they giggle nervously, or they look horrified, or they say, why are you studying that? Susan Morrison is a literature professor. And not too long ago, Morrison wrote a book titled Excrement in the Late Middle Ages. It was not a bestseller. But, you know, that's too bad because it has some pretty cool stuff in it. For example, in the Middle Ages, there were no flush toilets. So at night, people used chamber pots, outdoor privies, or a window. In 1325, an English servant named John Tolley felt nature's call, rolled out of bed, got to the window, and began peeing on the street below. But he slipped, fell 30 feet, crushed his neck, and died. All that waste had to go somewhere. Luckily, there were people that would actually come to your home and haul it away. And they were called gong farmers. Gong actually comes from the word to go, just like if you say, I have to go, meaning I have to go to the toilet. So they were basically farming the stuff that you produce when you go, when you go to the toilet. And the gong farmers hauled what they collected out to the country to actual farms because the human waste of city dwellers made good fertilizer. And it would typically be put on a dung boat and floated down the Thames, say, to rural areas. And then the farmers would pay for that excrement from the city. So the gong farmer would be paid twice from the people who produced the excrement and then those who were buying it to use it. It just goes to show urine and excrement were literally everywhere. It got so bad that in 1349, King Edward III complained that London streets were so clogged with human feces that it needed to be removed with all speed to places far distant from that city. From American Public Media and the Water Main, I'm Jed Kim. And this is Indeed. We're a podcast that's more about water than excrement. But you know what? The two come into contact more than you realize or are gonna like. In this, our first season, we'll be lifting the lids off of sewers. Sewers are the seemingly simple systems that take our waste away, never to be seen again. Then the engines of restoration known as wastewater treatment plants offer rebirth transforming our poop and pee into clean, or, you know, mostly clean, actually sometimes impeccably clean, water. It took centuries for humans to figure out a way to keep human waste and water separate. One of the big turning points happened in London in the 1800s. Yeah, are we doing like a full, the full Jon Snow story? Correct, without the script, right? The entire cholera epidemic of the 19th century. Well, let's do it then. Uh, Hey, Todd. How you doing, man? Hey, pretty good. Hey, Jed. This is Todd Melby. He's a reporter and podcast producer. Why is it important to talk about cholera a long time ago somewhere else? How does that relate to us? Well, it's important because in the mid-19th century, London was the world's biggest city. It had two million people. But the world hadn't really figured out how to do big cities well. You know, might find an apartment or a little housing development right next to a tannery or something that was big and gross. (laughs) House, butcher, blacksmith, industrial waste complex. (laughs) (laughs) There also wasn't a municipal water company or municipal sewers. 
there were lots of private water companies that served different neighborhoods. And each of those water companies stuck their pipes into the nearest river. In this case, it was the Thames. So the story I'm about to tell you is about how the lack of an organized system had catastrophic consequences. Catastrophic consequences? What do you mean? I mean that in the 19th century, there was a rash of cholera epidemics in major cities around the world. Cholera wiped out tens of thousands of people in places like New York, London, Paris, Berlin, and Chicago. All right, what is cholera? We don't hear much about cholera these days, but it's a deadly disease. It causes horrific diarrhea. Okay. Victims actually die of dehydration. Yikes. And people died within hours. Sometimes they died in 18 hours. Sometimes they died in just four hours. So cholera is running rampant in London. Yeah, but nobody really knows how it's spreading. I mean, they're afraid of it. It's killing indiscriminately. It's killing the rich. It's killing the poor. It's killing people in lots of different neighborhoods. The thing about cholera was that a lot of people died in a very short period. And you didn't know if you were going to be next. That's Stephen Halliday. He's written a book on this topic. It's called The Great Stink of London. With many diseases, like typhus, for example, which are caused uh, by fleas carried by rats, typhus was more or less confined to the dwellings of the very poor. So if you were one of the people who made the laws and sat in Parliament in the House of Commons or the House of Lords, you weren't too bothered about that. However, most people think it's all in the air. Uh, what do you mean? Go back to Victorian London in the 1840s and 1850s. You're walking around London and there is a terrible smell and people are dying of cholera. Then you go home, you drink a glass of water that to the naked eye looks perfectly clean. It's reasonable to assume that it's the air and not the water that's causing this, isn't it? That's what everybody thought. The prevailing scientific theory was that all disease was transmitted through a vapor or a smell in the air. Oh, okay. It's what you'll hear scientists back then call a miasma. I got to say, it kind of makes sense to me on some root level that you'd be afraid of the air and the disease that it carries. Yeah, but today we know that not every disease is carried through the air. HIV isn't. Malaria isn't. But back then, pretty much everybody believed it. I've just got a quotation here from a man called William Farr, which sums it up. May I read it to you? Of course. He was the statistician who worked for the Registrar-General of Births, Marriages and Deaths, and he compiled reasons for people dying. And this is what he wrote in 1847. A disease mist arising from the breath of two million people from open sewers and cesspools, graves and slaughterhouses is continually kept up and undergoing changes. In one season it was pervaded by cholera, in another by influenza. At one time it bears smallpox, measles, scarlatina and whooping cough among your children. At another it carries fever on its wings like an angel of death it has hovered for centuries over London. The angel of death. That's what William Farr believed. He believed that underneath the sewers and underneath the graves of former cholera victims, there was a stench. It was the stench of death. And that once it was released up into the air, it was kind of hanging over London like a black shroud. Okay. 
This miasma theory was really prevalent in Western society at the time. So William Farr believed it, and for a long, long time, another doctor believed it. His name was Jon Snow. Did he, uh, did he know nothing? What? Game of Thrones. Ah! No, 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 not that guy. I'm talking about a real guy. The real Jon Snow figured out that it was really the water, the water that caused cholera. I'm Stephen Rackman. Rackman here is going to help us through the next bit of our story. And I'm one of the co-authors of Cholera, Chloroform, and the Science of Medicine, A Life of Jon Snow. Jon Snow was born in York in 1813. As a young man, he went to medical school. Then he opened up a practice in London and began seeing patients. Snow had a really, really inquisitive mind. In his off hours, he conducted scientific investigations. Between 1839 and 1849, he wrote 50 papers. Really? He was also a bit of an eccentric in that he was a vegetarian and he was a teetotaler. Not many people were either of those things in the 19th century in London. When the outbreak happens in 1849, he's basically thinking that cholera asphyxia is, is some kind of miasmatic disease. But something happens in 1849 that changes his mind. And to understand what happens next, it helps to know a little bit about Jon Snow's mind. And that calls for a short detour to anesthesia. When Jon Snow became a doctor, anesthesia was still new. No one was very good at using it. An American dentist figured out that if you give patients chloroform before surgery, they don't feel pain. Big breakthrough. Okay. But doctors didn't know how much chloroform to give. If you give people too much, they die. If you give them too little, they wake up in the middle of surgery. And both of those things were happening far too often. So Jon Snow, like everybody else, wanted to know just how much anesthesia to give a patient. But unlike everybody else, he decided to do experiments to try to figure it out. He would take his watch out, give himself some chloroform, clunk, pass out. Oh my God. Then wake up and look at his watch. What? And then he'd figure out, you know, did I give myself too much or too little? How long was I out? Not exactly a clinical trial, I know, but it was a scientific approach. Jon Snow was after evidence. He wanted data and he did figure it out. He became an expert at giving patients the right amount of anesthesia. And that's the same kind of methodical thinking he applied to cholera. So the transformation of Jon Snow's thinking really begins with the report that he reads where they're investigating an outbreak in August of 1849. Yeah, so this outbreak happens south of the Thames in a neighborhood called Horsley Down. Snow goes to investigate, and there he finds a pair of housing developments. It's a pretty dingy little terrace, which is a row of about 13 houses with no ventilation in them, all cheek by jowl, jumbled together. And right next to those 13 houses, there's another group of 13 houses. The exact same number of homes, exact same virtually number of families. So the second little terrace has the same number of cottages, 13. Out the back of them, they have a series of privies or outhouses. The same everything. It appears to be identical. I guess it's important that they were mirror images of each other because... If you're designing an experiment, uh, you want to get it down to just like one variable. Exactly. That's exactly what you want. You want a single variable. So Jon Snow saw this as a control case or a natural experiment. When cholera hits, more people die in one terrace than the other. What? There are nine to ten deaths from cholera in five days. 
That's a lot for a tiny terrace. And in the other terrace, also with 13 cottages, only one person dies. The two groups of houses each had a different well. Huh. And he talked to the doctor who attended to the dying patients, and he created a chronology for them. And based on that chronology, he discovered that he felt that the contamination uh, with fecal matter had created the conditions for that outbreak. Snow figures out that the poop in the drinking water is bad. Uh huh. So he writes this big report. It's 31 pages long, and it's called On the Mode of Communication of Cholera. So then he publishes it, and he saves the day. Uh, no. That fell on deaf ears. Really? Doctors, government officials, newspaper reporters. Pretty much everyone ignores it. They don't think it's sophisticated. They think it's kind of a hobby horse, that snow is like a crank. We'll have more in a minute after this short break. Several years later, in 1854, cholera strikes again. This time, Snow determines that the water from a pump at Broad Street is killing people. It's like, a, it's like a hot spot where everyone around it is getting sick. Yeah. So in the name of public safety, Snow convinces the local council to remove the handle from the pump so no one can use it. Okay. They do. How did he figure out it was the water pump? I mean, that's... I guess because he, he was the only person who, th- who was thinking about the water. So he would have been looking for water sources. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the case where Jon Snow had super local impact and he was listened to. Then he goes into detective mode. Examining death records of cholera victims, looking at their addresses, and then matching up each person's address with their drinking water source. Remember, there's no municipal drinking water company in London at the time. There's just lots of private companies. A pattern emerges. Snow discovers that people in some parts of town are more likely to get cholera than other parts of town. Then he delivers a lecture at the London Medical Society, asserting again that cholera is in the water. It's not in the air. It is not a miasma. Oh, yeah. So, like, after this, was he, like hoisted on everyone's shoulders? (laughs) No. No? Wow, what does it take? This time, he's openly criticized by the medical establishment. Let's bring back Stephen Halliday, and he's going to read William Farr's takedown of Jon Snow. It has been suggested by Dr. Snow that the cause of whatever was peculiar in the case lay in the general use of one particular well situated at Broad Streets outside his surgery and having, it was imagined, its waters contaminated by the diarrhoea evacuations of cholera patients. After careful inquiry, we see no reason to adopt this belief. We see no reason to adopt this belief. Farr then dug the knife in deeper, and he wrote his own report. Oh, there was lots of data in there, too. That's right. Statistics, tables, bar charts histograms. There's even an an elevation chart that shows that the further away from the River Thames you get, the less cholera you get. 
So again, they thought it was the air, not the water. So what happened next? Nothing much changed until 1858. The river just kept getting more and more sewage and excrement and urine and yuckiness in it. It all just kept accumulating there in the Thames like a murky mess. Gross. But in 1858, it was a super muggy, super hot summer. And guess what? Parliament had just opened up a brand new building and it overlooked the Thames. Rooms in the newly rebuilt Houses of Parliament had to be abandoned because members of Parliament could not bear the smell. And bear in mind, these are important people. They control the legislature and they think the smell is killing them. That's the important thing. These MPs, the members of Parliament from the House of Commons and the House of Lords, they actually thought they were dying. They thought they were breathing in death from the Thames. It must have been a truly frightening time. These guys with their morning coats and frock coats and top hats really believed that they were being poisoned. Even despite what Jon Snow was able to show. Exactly. A couple of years earlier, London's chief engineer... Sir Joseph Bazaldred, one of the great heroes of sanitary engineering, yes. He came up with a plan to move the waste away from the city. And his plan was, let's connect all the sewers, let's build a bunch of water pumps, and let's put all the waste out near the North Sea so that when the tide goes out, it'll take away more of the poop. That was his big plan. He didn't do it because he thought it would cure cholera. He did it because nobody likes waste. Bazalgette's plan is ignored until all these members of parliament think that they're dying from this, this, this great stench. The big stink, the awful smell of London in 1858. It took that big stink to force the issue. Once MPs thought that they might die from the miasmatic stench, they voted to spend money on sewers. Okay. Little by little, as pipes went into the ground and an interconnected sewer network went online, the Thames got cleaner. So when the next cholera epidemic hits London, fewer people are drinking contaminated water and fewer people are getting sick. But experts didn't attribute it to Jon Snow's theory on poopy drinking water. Not until a French scientist named Louis Pasteur discovers that by boiling beer, wine, milk, or water, one could kill bacteria. Here's Stephen Rackman again. After Pasteur's work has become uh, known and germ theory is beginning to be accepted. Only then do people realize Jon Snow was right. Cholera-tainted drinking water kills. When the outbreak in 1866 occurs, many pumps are immediately um, chained or the handles are removed. There's a, a public recognition that Jon Snow's theory was correct. I, I love this one testimonial where in Victorian prose, they say, through his severe induction, he determined the correct thing, and we're all grateful for it. So it's 1866 now, and everybody loves Jon Snow, including William Farr, his one-time nemesis. There's just one problem. Snow is dead. Oh, that's sad. The cholera theorist an anesthesiologist, had died eight years earlier. The bulk of his research from 1848, with the exception of the cholera studies, is on anesthetics. And he's searching for a better anesthetic. I mean, he was whiffing 
a number of volatiles to see their anesthetic properties. For a while, he was experimenting with amylene and things we know have all kinds of toxicity. Um, It may have killed him. That's right. The thing he became known for, his work in anesthesia, might have done him in. Or Jon Snow. Today, Jon Snow is revered. He's widely credited as the world's first epidemiologist, the person who created a field of scientific study that used data to improve public health. And you know, Jed, Snow also showed that mixing excrement and drinking water wasn't just gross, it was deadly. Fast-growing cities in the U.S. started to get the message. Cities like Chicago, which grew from a tiny village to more than a million people in just 40 years. Chicago started to realize that it had to keep its drinking water and its sewage separate. In fact, it went to crazy, unheard-of links to do that. What did it do? I'm not going to tell you until our next episode. Ah, come on, man. (laughs) Sorry, you're going to have to wait. Also on the next episode of In Deep, join us as we tell the story of a scientific discovery that helped humanity. Or would have, had the man who made it happen not been a low-down, dirty double-dealer. Our production team for this episode includes Todd Melby, Chris Julin, Annie Baxter, and me, Jed Kim. Our theme music was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. A shout-out to the authors featured in this episode. Susan Morrison is a professor at Texas State University. The full title of her book is Excrement in the Late Middle Ages, Sacred Filth and Chaucer's Fico Poetics. Stephen Halliday lives in Cambridge, England. He's the author of The Great Stink of London and An Underground Guide to Sewers, or Down, Through, and Out in Paris, London, New York, etc., Stephen Rackman is a professor at Michigan State University. His co-authors on that Jon Snow book are Peter Vinton Johansson, Howard Brody, Nigel Panneth, and Michael Ripp. In Deep is a production of The Watermain at American Public Media.